Let's pray. Father, we come to you not as a formality. Lord, this is not just the next step in this uh, liturgy. But Father, we come to you because we need you. Apart from you, uh, we can do nothing. And so we come to you and we ask, Lord, that you would be gracious to us in this hour. Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Father, that you would open eyes that are blind. Lord, that you would till up our hearts that might have grown hard over the past year, two years, week. Father, would you soften us and make us the kind of people who are uh, flexible, useful in your hand as you build your church. Lord, our desire is to be faithful. We want to be your servants. And we know, Lord, that the way we do that, in part, is by coming underneath your word and hearing from you. And so, Lord, as we come this morning to gather as your church, would you cause your word uh, to go deep in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives? And, Lord, we ask that you would make much of yourself this morning and help us to be changed as a result of hearing from you. And Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, where we'll continue our study through Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Our focus this morning will be on verses 29 to 34. And as you're turning there, I just want to ask you, what was it that caused you, motivated you to follow Jesus Christ? What was it that caused you, compelled you to follow Jesus? I'm sure we would have a number of reasons, and a lot of that is um, formed by the season of life we were in, the place we were in, when all of a sudden the gospel was clear for us, and we decided uh, by a work, supernatural work in our heart, that we would follow Jesus. I just wonder what it was for you. It's good to remember that. Um, but there's a, a striking pattern throughout the gospel narratives that we see. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That the thing that turns it for people often was a recognition that Jesus was the Messiah. They recognized, they realized that this man was the promised Messiah. And what we're going to see in these six verses is another development in Mark's argument to try to convince you that Jesus really was and is the promised Messiah King. And the point that Mark wants to make is he's the Messiah, therefore you should become his disciple. You should follow him. And Mark has a number of ways of, of trying to convince you of this, but this morning he's going to give us a window into the ministry of Jesus. And though this window is small, it's only six verses, through it we get to see two extraordinary facets of Jesus' character. First, we'll see that he is extraordinary in his compassion. We'll see that as he interacts with the sick and the oppressed. And then, second, we're going to see that he is also extraordinary in his power. Compassion and power. We'll see his power as he turns back to the effects of the curse and executes ultimate authority over demonic powers. And, and both of these attributes are put before us, showcased, as it were, before us, in order to confirm that Jesus was and is all that the Old Testament promised that He would be. Namely, a compassionate and powerful Messiah Savior. So will you stand with me as we read God's Word? Mark 1, beginning in verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue... They came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. 
Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. You can be seated. Six verses, small little insight into the ministry of Jesus. But what we learn about Jesus in these verses really has the, the capacity to change your life, if you see it rightly. But before we jump into these verses, I want to sort of zoom out a bit, uh, well, really a lot, zoom out a lot, and give you some context for what Mark is doing in this specific passage. In the first verse of Mark, he gives us the title of his book, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, or the gospel of Jesus Christ, but really it's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what that simple title tells us is that Mark is not giving us an unbiased, sort of dispassionate view of who Jesus is. No, Mark has an agenda. He has a point that he's making. And his agenda in this entire book, the whole gospel of Mark, is to convince you and me that Jesus of Nazareth truly was the promised Messiah and Son of God. That's his angle that he's working. This is not just a simple, unbiased, detached historical account of Jesus. All right, This is an inspired account from God of the life of Jesus set forth in such a way to convince you that Jesus is worthy of everything you have. He's worthy of it all. He's the Messiah. And Mark had sit at Peter's feet, and he had heard these accounts of Jesus' life. And of all the things that Mark gleaned from his time with Peter, he could have chosen anything to say. Right? He, could have, he could have inserted any historical account. John tells us that were the deeds of Jesus written down, the world itself could not contain the whole. Right? There's not a big enough book to write down all that Jesus did. So why these six verses? Why, Mark, do you narrow it down to these six verses, uh, you know, in 16 chapters, of course? What is he doing? Well, of course, he's operating under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But he has a strategy, right? He doesn't want us to be morally neutral about Jesus. And some of us are here this morning, and that's where we are. And we're just sort of neutral about Jesus. We believe that he exists. We believe that he might have died for sinners, But Mark would have you to come out of that neutrality where you think you are and to follow the king. Mark would convince you that Jesus is truly the promised Messiah. And and this really is what it all hinges on. The word Messiah is is really, it's an important word for us to know. All right, I keep throwing that word out, Messiah, Messiah. Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word Christ is means Messiah. Now, it's a theologically loaded word. It's very significant. And it refers to an anointed one. It literally means to smear or sort of wipe liquid, which was oil, over usually the forehead. The practice of anointing was used as a symbolic act of consecration. It marked an object or a person who was set apart by God for a specific task. All right, that's what it means to be a Messiah, to be set apart, anointed by God for a specific task. Now, in the Old Testament, this language of Messiah or anointing is used of three categories of leaders. You could probably guess who they are. Prophets, right? Priests and kings. Elisha is called a Messiah, Aaron, priest, is called a Messiah. And so was Saul, David, 
and Solomon. All of them were called Messiahs. They were men who were intentionally set apart by God for a specific mission and task to be accomplished. But regardless, these were significant men, but regardless of their significance, none of them earned the title of capital M Messiah. Right? These were all lowercase M Messiahs. They were anointed ones in the sense that they were set apart by God, but none of them fulfilled their office to the capacity that one who would come later would fill it. There is set apart in the Old Testament a, a, an office or a, a person, a capital M Messiah, who will encompass the role of prophet, the role of priest, and the role of king. And this hope is found throughout the Old Testament. And, and ultimately, we find that God has a plan to send a single man who would encompass all the promises of God, and he would be the one single-handedly in whom those promises would become yes and amen. He would be a capital M Messiah. And this figure is described in various ways throughout the Old Testament. Right? You, you read the Old Testament, you do a study of, of the Messiah in the Old Testament, and you think, this has to be a spectacular figure. And we come to the New Testament and we find that is exactly the case. There is only one person who can fulfill all of these promises of what the Messiah would do, and that clearly is Jesus But there are two aspects of the Messiah's identity that I want us to zero in on from the Old Testament. Of all that Scripture says about this coming Messiah, the two attributes that Mark unpacks in Mark 1, 29-34 stand out. Power and remarkable or extraordinary compassion. When we read of what the Messiah will be like, we read first that he will be a powerful figure in the Old Testament. We know this Christmas verse, Isaiah 9, 6-7. Just listen for it, the power of the promised Messiah. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He'll rule the nations, right? The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And notice verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. Here is a figure whose government will never end. And here is a figure who, out of all the chaos and hate in the world, is able to bring in everlasting peace. Powerful, powerful figure. Now, turn with me to Psalm 2. I want you to see this in your own Bibles. It's another element of the power of the promised Old Testament Messiah. This is Psalm 2. It's one of the messianic psalms that point to a coming Savior of God's people. Verse 1 says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Messiah, right? His anointed, his, the one who is set apart for a specific task. The kings of the earth take their stand against the anointed. And they say, verse 3, Let us tear their fetters apart. And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then going down, speaking of the Messiah in verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Who is that? The kings of the earth who take their stand against God's anointed, His Messiah. Here's what He will do. He will 
shatter them like a glass bowl. All right? Verse 10, Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He may not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Remarkable power, authority, so that even your Joy in His presence should be marked by trembling. Daniel says the same thing, Daniel 7.14, that this Messiah is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples and nations and men of every language, tribe, nation, tongue, might serve Him. His dominion is everlasting. And it will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here is a king. Here is a promised savior of God's people who is remarkably powerful. This is who he is. Now, all of the New Testament says that that figure is Jesus. And we believe that. Now, here's the question. Does the Jesus you serve, is he marked by this kind of power? Is Jesus, the Jesus you follow, do you live with an awareness, a mindfulness, that He is the one who has this kind of power? Well, He's not only powerful, but we also find that the Old Testament points to a Messiah who is extremely compassionate. Now turn with me to Isaiah 42. We read that. Russ read that for us. Isaiah 42. This is a, just a remarkable section. Isaiah 42, 1-9. It's the beginning of the servant songs. These are messianic Uh, songs in Isaiah that tell us about who the Messiah will actually be. What will he be like? And Isaiah points out that he will actually be a servant. He will be a Messiah-servant, a messianic servant, a set-apart one to do God's work. And in this first song, Isaiah 42, 1-7, Isaiah tells us about the kind of ministry that this coming Messiah will have. All right, What kind of ministry will this Psalm 2 Messiah have? Right? Who whips everybody into shape, causes them all to be afraid and fearful and tremble. What kind of ministry will he have? Isaiah 42 tells us, Behold my servant whom I uphold. All right, immediately we see that this servant has a special relationship to the Father. He's called my servant. It speaks to the willingness of this coming Messiah to carry out His Father's will. It says, My servant, my chosen in whom my soul delights. It speaks to the servant being selected by the Father, appointed for a specific purpose in which the Father delights. And we saw that in the baptism of Jesus. You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. I'm happy. I delight in you. Going on, he says, I have put my spirit upon him. This is how this servant, this Messiah that is to come, this is how he'll get things done. He will have the spirit of God empowering him to do the work. He's a man, but he's extraordinary. We'll see, he's the God-man. But he will be empowered by the Spirit of God. He will bring forth justice to the nations. All right, all those people that have experienced inequities, all those people who have rebelled against God and the the anointed Messiah, Psalm 2, he will bring forth justice. He will set all the records straight. And then notice verse 3. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. 
This speaks to the manner of this coming servant. The manner. Although endowed with Psalm 2 power, he's not going to come in uh, with loud, boisterous pomp. No, he's not lifting up his voice. He's not raising his voice in the street. He will not parade around with the pomp and show that kings, people with that kind of power normally operate with. No, he will be different. He will live as a gentle, quiet servant. Confident in his father. But he will meekly go about the work. And he will see about specifically the work of lifting up those who are weak. Verse 3, the end of verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. This speaks to the gentleness of the Messiah's ministry. All right? A reed was a disposable product. All sorts of things were made out of it. It was a hollow plant, hollow stem, kind of like cane. Right? It grew in marshes, and it was abundant, and it was replaceable, kind of like a plastic straw. All right? you, would, you would use it, throw it away. If it broke, you would throw it away. Right? If, if your plastic straw has a hole in it, you throw it away. Unless you're my precious children who want to keep it. Um, but this is what a reed is. It's, it's disposable. But the servant, this promised coming one, who, who has all sorts of power, when it comes to weak people that are bruised, and, and kind of the, the, the lower half of society, that the other kings would come in, they would look at the population and say, okay, we'll, we'll keep this half, uh, and this half we'll just let them sort of wither out. No, this servant will come, and he'll say, yeah, let's keep this half, or maybe we won't. Some of them are too proud, but let's come along and lift up these people and help them flourish. That's what he means by a bruised reed he will not break. He's not going to throw it out. The same thing is, is captured by the next line, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. It's essentially the same idea. A wick is of little value. It's disposable. And it's easier to just throw it away and start fresh. Sometimes that's how you describe your life, right? Uh, little value, weak, disposable, and it might be better to throw it away. No, that is not right, right? Uh, the Lord, the servant of the Lord, he does not treat weak people who seem to be of little value. He doesn't treat them that way. And even when you feel that way, uh, the servant comes and he picks you up, right? And he restores your soul. And this coming Messiah, this coming king, he'll have remarkable power, but he will not snuff out those who are just smoldering, right? Those uh, doing his work who are just barely making it along, those people who are following him that uh, could be easily cast off. No, he, he doesn't cast them off. He comes to them and he lifts them up. And gently cares for them. Uh, one commentator writes, These methods, the methods of this Messiah King, these methods contrast with the usual ways that strong kings ruled their nations. They ruled usually through absolute military power and force. They gave unchangeable commands that frequently showed little compassion or care for the weakest in society. These kings cared little about those who were suffering, diseased, sick. Anyone who got in the way of the king's wishes would be disposed of. Right? But this verse demonstrates that God's tender care for the weak and oppressed will be exemplified in a different way in the coming servant. He will be remarkably powerful but meek and gentle. That is what all of Israel is looking for, or should have been looking for, when Jesus was born. Well, I think you get the point. Power, compassion. Maybe one verse that captures all of this in a nutshell is Isaiah 41, verse 10. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Behold, actually, verse, chapter 40 and verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, 
and with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So the Lord God comes with might and strength and power. Psalm 2 power. In verse 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosoms. Bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. One hand is remarkable power. The other hand is gentle compassion to lift you up when you feel like you can't go any further. This is what the Messiah would be like. Now, Mark's agenda, you thought we would never get back to Mark. We're back in Mark. All right. Mark's agenda is to show you that all of that is Jesus. All right. All of the power and compassion finds its culmination, finds its coalescing in Jesus Christ. Why? Because He is the promised Messiah. That's His point. So turn, look down with me. If you're not in Mark, turn back to Mark. I'm speaking to myself here. Turn back to Mark. Mark chapter 1. And I want you to see in this passage that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is exactly what the Old Testament promised us that He would be. A compassionate but powerful Savior of sinners. All right? Look at verse 29. Mark 1, verse 29. Well, let's start in verse 28. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. What news was that? Well, it was the news about uh, all that happened in the synagogue, right? Jesus stands up to teach. He teaches as one who has authority. Somebody in the synagogue is demon-possessed. He stands up and starts crying out against Jesus. And Jesus, with a word, casts the demon out. And all the people, verse 28, says the news, well, verse 27, rather, says they were amazed at his teaching and his authority. And then verse 28, everyone started talking about it. Right? The news about him spread. And the key word, really, in that text is amazement. The people are floored that Jesus has the kind of authority and power that they had just beheld. And then, in verse 29, we read that Jesus and his newly appointed disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, leave for Simon's house, probably for lunch. Can you imagine that lunch conversation? I will tell you this, they probably weren't critiquing the sermon. They were in awe. They were shocked. What has just happened? And who is this that we are now so close to? They had to be reeling. So they make it back to Simon and Andrew's house, and they're immediately faced with the reality of Peter's mother-in-law, who, according to verse 30, was lying sick with a fever. She was lying sick, and the implication there is that she's too sick to get up. And, and do what she needs to be doing. Luke, <clears throat> who was a doctor, he tells us that she was suffering from a high fever. She wasn't just sick, she had a high fever. Most likely, <clears throat> then, she was really sick. Really sick, and perhaps even life-threatening. It was serious enough, though, that Simon and Andrew know, okay, here, by God's providence, here is this man, Jesus, who John the Baptist told us was the Messiah, and we were hopeful that he is, and he's in our house. And here is your mother-in-law. We got to ask him about her. We got to ask him about her, which is striking the way that it's put. They don't go ask Jesus to heal her. If you look at Luke, if you look at the gospel accounts of this passage, they just ask him about her. You know, it's almost like they're they're not. Really, they don't want to directly say, can you heal her? They just ask him about her. They, they talk to her, talk to him, rather, about her. That's what we see in verse 30. They spoke to Jesus about her. They knew enough, though, that if this man was really the promised Messiah, he was the one who would be able to take care of this problem. Now, there's just a real simple application there. When you are faced with these kind of dilemmas, where do you go? I need to call my doctor. Maybe you do. I'm not saying don't call your doctor. Uh, 
I'm not a doctor. I'm not giving medical advice here. Um, but you should first go to Jesus. He's the one to whom his disciples go. Right? Is that your default? Is that your, is that your inclination? Just to go to him. Bring these cares to him. Do you think he's too busy to hear about your problem? He's not. No, he, he comes to the bruised reed, remember? He comes to the weak and he lifts them up. And we're going to see that's exactly what he does in this scenario. So the newly appointed disciples, they have a sick, Peter has a sick uh, mother-in-law, which incidentally uh, tells us that Peter was married, right? Peter is married. Uh, Paul tells us that most likely Peter and the other, some of the other apostles were also married, and they traveled around with their wives. Um, so this is just what we see in Scripture. And, and presumably, Peter's wife was also in this house. Right? So you have Peter, and then you have Andrew sharing a house. This is Simon and Andrew's house. And then you have Peter's mother-in-law is in the house. And then you presumably have Peter's wife in the house and whoever else might have been living there, right? This is a lot of people in one house, but this was the common way of living, right? You had large families living together under the same roof. So the, the principle here, the, the point here is that this is a close-knit family, right? They love each other. So they go to Jesus about the one they love. They give him an update on her health. And no doubt, they're just sort of curious as to what, what is he going to do? All right? We were just in a public place where everyone could see him act. And he did all of these wonderful things in public. But now here we are behind closed doors. What is he going to do? How is he going to act? What's he going to say? And what Jesus does manifests his extraordinary compassion. Look at verse 31. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. It's amazing. Notice, notice his gentility, his care. He came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left. Just like a doctor he comes and he, Luke says, he comes and he leans over her. He looks over her. He sees her. He sees her condition. And he gently takes her weak, limp hand, no doubt. She has, doesn't have enough energy to get up and move. And here Jesus takes her gently by the hand and lifts her up. And immediately the fever leaves. This is a common theme in Mark Jesus doesn't just heal from a distance. Right? He could have healed the crowds with a word. But for some reason, in all the Gospels, when Jesus is going to heal, he touches the person. Not always, but often. Often he touches the person. It shows us not just that Jesus had remarkable power, but that he was remarkably compassionate. Right? A touch is a powerful thing. It shared, expressed his pity for the suffering and the weak. And then notice further on, Jesus doesn't just simply show compassion to Peter's mother-in-law. Right? That's an intimate scenario in the house kind of thing. But look at verse 32. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. Now, stepping back just a minute, Mark is precise here. He says, when evening came, verse 32, when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him the sick and oppressed. So why did they wait until evening came? Because it was the conclusion of the Sabbath. Right? This is a Sabbath day. Sabbath morning, they go to synagogue. Right? Synagogue's over around lunchtime. They go to Peter's, Simon and Andrew's house. Jesus uh, heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then as the news is spreading uh, the, and the Sabbath is breaking, people now have the freedom uh, to lift up the mats of all the sick and lame people and bring them to Simon's home. 
As the sun sets, the crowd begins to form right outside of Simon's front door. Verse 33, it says, the whole city is there. The whole city gathered at the door. Hundreds, thousands probably of people, right outside the door. It was really something. And Jesus' ministry in the synagogue demonstrated his compassion. I mean, Jesus' ministry at home demonstrated his compassion with Peter's mother-in-law. But what would he do now that there's a crowd of sick, contagious people, probably smelly people, at his front door? What is he going to do? If there ever was a time for Jesus to heal from a distance, uh, this would be the time, right? And the text literally says, these were the people who had it bad. They were sick. They had it bad. And they were diseased, demon-possessed. They would have been coughing and sneezing, bleeding, bruised, pale, unattractive. Some under demonic possession would have been acting sporadically, chaotically. I mean, just imagine... 8.30, you just finished your dinner, you've already put the kids down, and you get the knock. And not only you get the knock at 8.30, but you've been working hard to serve all day long. Right? You're exhausted. You've been dealing with one thing after the other. You've been serving, and all these people are just you know, there. You're in someone else's house, for that matter, and it's not just someone else's house. The whole family, I mean, the extended family lives in this one house. That's enough to to cause you to sin, probably. Um, But here at 8.30, the knock comes on the door. And it's not just a a crowd, any crowd. It's the crowd of the worst in society. And Jesus looks into the eyes of this crowd. And he says, get away. Don't come here. Uh, You're too bad. You're too uh, sick. I've got ministry to do. I can't get what you have. If I get sick, I'll be down for a week. No. No, he has entrusted himself fully into his Father's care. And so, as the promised messianic servant... He takes the bruised reeds, he takes the faintly burning wicks, and he loves and serves them. This is compassion beyond degree. He looks, he sees the people suffering, he sees them hopeless. Scripture says often that Jesus looked at the crowd with compassion. And what's interesting, in in Mark's account, We just see verse 34, he healed many, he healed them. But in Luke's account, Luke 4 and verse 40, it says, When the sun was setting, all those who who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Every one of them laid his hands on them. Not because he needed to. He could have healed them with a word. But he laid his hands on them. Why? Because he is a Messiah of compassion. He is far more gracious, far more compassionate, far more merciful than you or I have begun to comprehend. And in this moment, he demonstrates it for all to see. And Peter, sitting at, and I mean Mark, sitting at Peter's feet around the campfire probably, hears What Jesus did in this moment, and Mark's wheels are turning, and he thinks, surely that was the Messiah. Who would do that? Who would do such a thing? Who would go to the sick, the contagious, the demonic, and even touch them and care for them? Well, Jesus did, and he is a compassionate Savior. Martin Luther said, the life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. And what does that have to do with anything I just said? The life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. 
What he means by that is it's not enough for Jesus to be compassionate and merciful and gracious in your mind. If you are going to have a living walk with the Lord, this compassionate Savior must be your compassionate Savior. You have got to take Him at His word at every turn. He does not deal harshly with bruised reeds. You feel like that. You feel like you're at your wit's end. You feel like if at any point in your life, now is the time when Jesus would give up on me. Right? You've sinned too much for too long. You are the kind of person Jesus comes to and gently lifts up. He does not cast away the weak. He is gentle, he is meek, and he is mild. And that is true. I love Charles Wesley's hymn, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. Look upon a little child. Pity my simplicity and suffer me to come to thee. Lamb of God, I look to thee. Thou shalt my example be. Thou art gentle, meek, and mild. Thou wast once a little child. Fain I would be as thou art. Give me thine obedient heart. Thou art pitiful, compassionate, and kind. Let me have thy loving mind. Loving Jesus, gentle Lamb, in thy gracious hands I am. Make me, Savior, what thou art. Live thyself within my heart. Right? The life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. Two things there, two points of application. One, is this your Jesus? Right? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Tender, compassionate with sinners. Lay hold of him. Second, that is our example. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He is the one whom we follow. All right? Is your life characterized by that kind of compassion? That kind of draw to the lowest in society? The lowest among us? Matthew 25, Jesus says, As you have done to one of the least of these brothers of mine, so you have done to me. Right? We ought to be drawn especially to the weak, just as our Lord was. All right, So that is the compassion of Jesus. But this text clearly demonstrates His power. He is a compassionate Savior. He's a compassionate Messiah. But Mark also wants us to see His extraordinary power. If you have gentle Jesus, meek and mild, without the powerful Messiah, you have an imbalanced view of Christ, all right? And the scriptures are constantly calling us to sort of scrutinize our theology and correct it, all right? You probably will tend to fall either gentle Jesus, meek and mild, or powerful Psalm 2. You know, he'll wipe you off the face of the earth at his word. Both are true, friend. Both are true. But you have got to maintain the same sort of balance that scripture does. He is gentle, but he is powerful. And what we see in this text is that when he comes and heals, verse 31, Peter's mother-in-law, she is healed completely, entirely, and immediately. All right, look at verse 31. He takes her by the hand, the fever left her, and she waited on them. No lingering fatigue. You know what it's like to be sick for a week. You know what it's like to be sick for a month, maybe. And then you have another month of fatigue and dreariness, and, and it's hard. She has none of that. She is healed immediately, entirely, and verifiably. Right? Everyone around can look and say, something has happened here. This is not ordinary. He is the real deal. Could this be the Messiah? He has the power to reverse the curse and the effects of sin. It's extraordinary. And not only that, verse 34 says, He has power over the demons. He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. But I love the end of verse 34. 
He was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. It's really amazing. He was not permitting them to speak. They wanted to speak. Clearly they wanted to speak. But Jesus didn't permit it. Reminds us that even the devil is God's devil. He, the devil, is not sovereign. God is. And the Messiah, the servant, Jesus, has absolute authority over the demons. They want to speak and he doesn't permit it. They wanted to cry out, but he makes them be quiet. They know who he is. That's what the text says. And because they know who he is, Jesus says, be quiet. Now that's baffling, and there's all sorts of weird theories that have spun off of this. But the reality is, is that Mark, Jesus rather, doesn't need the demons to testify that he is the Messiah. Right? What is testifying that this man, Jesus, is truly the Messiah? What is the testimony? Well, in this case, it's that he is extraordinarily compassionate and extraordinarily powerful. He doesn't need demons to do that. He doesn't need demons to say, look, he's the Messiah. No, his own works proclaim him to be the Son of God. And so he says, be quiet. No more from you. And in a word, he quiets this crazy crowd that would have been full of demonically possessed people. And in one night, this is what is amazing. In one night, in Capernaum, Jesus banishes from this city disease, sickness, and demonic activity. In one night, it's gone. Banished. Right? And really, throughout Jesus' ministry, he was banishing that from all of Israel. And what does, that, what does that teach us? What does it point to? Well, it points us to the reality that all that Jesus was doing on this night in Capernaum was simply a foretaste of what was to come. If he is the promised, powerful, and compassionate Messiah, like Mark is arguing, like we believe him to be, then the day is coming when he will fulfill all of these servant songs from the book of Isaiah. All right? And one of those, chief, maybe the crowning song from Isaiah, is Isaiah 53. And in that psalm, or I say, I'm calling it a psalm, it's a song, a servant song. But in that song, Isaiah writes this. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And what is striking here is that in Matthew's account of this story, he concludes it all with this statement. This all was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, that he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. He took our infirmities, meaning he commiserated with us in our weakness. He didn't didn't just heal these people from a distance. He treated them as he touched each one of them, just like he treats you in your sickness, in your sin. He touches, he comes, he draws near. He commiserates with us in our weakness. We've already seen Hebrews 4 this morning, I prayed that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted like us in every way. He says, Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help or grace in time of need. This is is Jesus. Isaiah 53 says that he, he... took our infirmities. He commiserated with us in our sin. I mean, not in our sin, but in our, in our, our lives marked by life underneath the curse. He, he came underneath the curse and lived with us. And because of that, he's extraordinarily compassionate. But there's more. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus carried away our diseases primarily by becoming a curse for us, the text says this, Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. 
He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Notice this, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through. This is the promised Messiah. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his scourging we are healed. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. So what does it mean that Matthew says Jesus fulfilled this promise from Isaiah that he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases? Well, fundamentally, it tells us that Jesus dealt with sin and disease by dealing with its root. What is the root? Well, the root is sin. And Jesus dealt a final, ultimate blow to sin on the cross. And in so doing, He did bear our sin and sorrow, but in so doing, He he reversed the curse and all of its effects in our lives. Now, we see that now through a glass dimly. right? We see that primarily in this case, we see that Jesus has dealt with our sin. But there is coming a day when in heaven... All sin, death, and disease will be eradicated, just like on that night in Capernaum. And we will be with one another, totally together. And all sickness, death, sorrow, and pain, it will be no more. And we long for that day. And our light momentary afflictions now, well, they all drive us to that coming day. Well, let me just wrap up, because I need to conclude this, by saying this. In Christ... We have a compassionate and powerful Messiah. In Him, all of the promises of God are yes and amen. And this is the Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the one who comes to weak and weary sinners and doesn't cast them off, but lifts them up. Praise God for that. And let's walk closely behind Him and imitate Him. And so doing, bring him the sort of glory and, and, and honor that he is worthy to receive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for sending us a merciful, compassionate, powerful Savior in Christ. Oh Lord, we confess that our best falls far short of what you deserve. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see Christ clearly, to be convinced by Mark's argument here that Jesus is the promised, powerful, compassionate Messiah, and that we, like so many before, would rise up and follow closely behind Him. And Lord, it's in His powerful and compassionate name that we pray. Amen.